please take your Bibles with me and open them to Colossians chapter 1. We will not be starting over in Colossians, but we will start this morning there in a moment. Colossians chapter 1. Now up to this point in this series that we've been walking through, uh, looking at what the Bible has to say about the church, we've talked about the existence of the church and we've talked about the purpose and the calling of the church. The existence of the church is the fact that God has designed and desired her to be in this world, right? We're not a man-made institution. We don't come together by our own initiative or our own design. We're gathered together as God's people, by God's design, and by God's desire. <clears throat> also, in the last several weeks, we've been looking at the purpose and calling of the church, which is ultimately to glorify God. And though the church may involve herself in many different areas of ministry, primarily her purpose and her calling is to glorify God by worshiping Him, by edifying the saints, and by evangelizing the world. All of those things have many branches in which we might go off and, and highlight other things. But in a generic kind of overarching sense, the church is called to glorify God by worshiping Him regularly together and by helping each other in our spiritual growth and by sharing the gospel to the entire world. We come to the question now this morning, how does that happen? In other words, how is the church supposed to function? How is, she opposed, how is she supposed to accomplish her purpose and her calling and her mission? Now, some of you um, may not be too terribly interested in subject matters like this. It might come across to you as more technical, uh, less applicable. And yet, it's very applicable to us, isn't it? Um, we don't come here just to have our ears tickled. We come here to know what the Scriptures say and what the Scriptures tell us is right so that we might rightly practice and obey them. I thought this week about the illustration of a watchmaker and not modern-day watchmakers who just press a button at a factory, but old-time watchmakers who had to set down and piece by piece with their own hand assemble a watch. You think about the complexities in all of that, and it is very technical work. All the springs and all the gears and all the mechanisms to make sure that that watch works and works properly. Now there's a difference between a watchmaker and a good watchmaker, right? There are probably many watchmakers in the history of the world, and probably very few good watchmakers in the history of the world. Good watchmakers construct and build a watch, and it works ideally. Almost perfectly. It never misses a second. It never skips a beat. It keeps time once it's set and it keeps it almost indefinitely. Everybody wants the watch of a good watchmaker. And to be a good watchmaker, you have to understand how the watch is supposed to work right. You have to visualize it. You have to know its ins and its outs and its way of functioning. And so it is true with the church. For you and I to be the church rightly, for you and I to be the church as God has designed us, for you and I to accomplish our purpose and our mission and our task as the people of God in this fallen world, then we have to know the ins and outs of the church. We have to know exactly what the Bible says about the church. We have to know how we are to function. And as I've said several times through this series already, it's not a free-for-all. God tells us who the church is. How the church is supposed to function. And so that's what we turn our attention to this morning. And as we talk about how the church is supposed to function, we have to talk about, albeit very, very briefly, we have to talk about the government of the church, the authority of the church, the ministry of the church, and then the agents of the church. So that's what we will begin to do this morning. Beginning with the government of the church. How is the bride of Christ supposed to govern herself? Is she supposed to govern herself? Does somebody else have the right to speak into the government of the church? Now, we're not going to look this morning at 
the church's history of government because there's been very varied practices of church history throughout church history of how the church has governed herself. I'm going to instead take the liberty this morning to tell you what I believe is right and most biblical from the scriptures. We begin this morning when we talk about the government of the church with the headship of Jesus Christ. The church must understand that she is not independent. And there's a difference between independence and autonomy. Autonomous churches. Maybe I'll talk on that later. But for the point now, churches are not independent to do as they wish, to do as they please, to even make their own decisions. Ultimately, Christ is the head of the church, both universal and local. He's the head of the universal church, all believers everywhere at all times. He's the head of our church local. When we gather here today, Christ is our Lord, isn't He? In Colossians chapter 1, look in verse 18. In this passage of Scripture where Paul is explaining who Jesus is, he includes in verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church. That's referenced again in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. You have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Connection to the church. Again, chapter 2, verse 19. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. There's a few pages to your left. Paul says it there as well. Verse 22, talking about Christ. God put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Ephesians chapter 4, 15. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. All are references to Christ being the head, the supreme leader, the supreme ruler of the church. Which means, He's the one who governs us, doesn't He? He dictates to us right and wrong. He dictates to us our practices. He guides us and instructs us and directs us. Which, as we'll see later, means we have a massive obligation to seek the will of Christ in every matter of the life of the church. Don't we? We want to honor our head. Now, real quickly, Christ exists as the head of the church in two primary ways. First, He exists organically, which means He's the source of life for the church. Just as the human body cannot live without its human head attached to it, so the church doesn't exist without Christ. So the church doesn't live without Jesus. He's the one who purchased the church with His blood, didn't He? He gathers the church with His Spirit. Churches don't just start without the approval of Christ. You and I don't meet without the gathering of His Spirit. He sustains and He guides the church with His Word. He gives the church a hope of a new and an eternal future in life with Him, doesn't He? In every regard and in every way, we are sustained, held together, given life as a body of believers because Christ is our head. Our life as a church doesn't come from anywhere else. So as, as people of God, we first have to fix our eyes in that direction, right? Because our life doesn't come in our, from our budget. If all the money goes away, are we still a church gathered under Christ? Absolutely. Our life doesn't come from the pastor, from the members. Our life comes from the approval and gathering of Christ. But secondly, and more important for today, Christ is the head administratively. Which means He's not just the head in, a, in an abstract concept sort of a way. He's not just a figurehead. He is actually the King and the Lord of His church. And so exactly what we've been talking about. It is Jesus who governs us. Jesus who directs us and guides us and dictates to us what we are to do and what we are not to do. And He rules over us in righteousness, doesn't He? And he rules over us, as John 10 says, as a good shepherd. In love and in mercy and in tenderness, as we sang about this morning. 
But make no, make no mistake here. He also rules over us in absolute power. With absolute authority. With absolute glory. Which means we don't have the permission to go against our head. What Jesus says, we are joyfully bound to, aren't we? So church, as we talk about how we are to function, and under that heading, the subheading of the government of the church, remember it all begins with, first and foremost, Jesus and His life-giving Lordship over us. In fact, it doesn't just begin there. It ends there too, doesn't it? So this isn't my church. This isn't your church. This is Christ's church. Now, our Lord has appointed other means by which He governs His church. Extensions of His rule and extensions of His grace. I believe the Bible teaches that a church is to be governed and led by a plurality of elders, ultimately and finally with the congregation. So there's a distinction you need to know here, especially because these practices are, are becoming more and more um, practiced in church circles. There's a difference between elder or pastor ruled and elder or pastor led. Now, I'm going to use these terms interchangeably because I'm not a good public speaker and I can't stick to one term. The Bible uses the word elder pastor, bishop, all interchangeably. They're synonymous in, in many regards. So whatever comes out of my mouth, that's what I mean. Now, pastor ruled is not what I believe the Bible teaches. Pastor ruled is where a group of men are appointed by the church as pastors and they make every decision, big and small. The church has no say whatsoever. I don't think we find that in Scripture. I think what we find is pastor-led congregations where the church has men established in leadership over her and within her, and they, I would argue, ordinarily follow their leadership, but ultimately, the whole church should be involved in matters of the church, in matters of her ministry, in matters of her purpose, in matters of decision-making, and on and on and on and on. In fact, I would even argue good pastors don't try to usurp the authority of the congregation. Now, a few verses to look at this and attempt to prove my point. Flip over in Acts chapter 14. I don't want to spend too much time here because I actually want to revisit pastors and elders later. But I do want to point out a few things about the relationship of pastors leading a congregation and a congregation being involved in the decisions in life of the church. So Acts chapter 14, verse 23. I just want you to look at a few words here. Paul and Barnabas are doing mission work. There's kind of this closing phrase in verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, I'm not giving you a lot of context there. What I'm trying to point you to in that one singular verse is Paul and Barnabas didn't see their ministry to these believers as done. They didn't see their, their work and involvement in the life of this church as done until... Elders are appointed. And elders are appointed in a solemn way and they're appointed to care and, be and for the believers to be committed to. You can look in chapter 20, verse 17 as well for another example of that. But now let's flip over to, to um, Titus chapter 1. I'm skipping the passage in 1 Timothy 3 because we'll look at it in a moment. Titus chapter 1. Paul writes to the young Titus. And he reminds Titus in verse 5 of the reason he left Titus in Crete. 
He says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is your mission, Titus. This is your task. This is why I left you where you're at and in the instruction I'm giving to you. That instruction is that you appoint godly men who are chosen by Christ to lead His church. We can flip over to James chapter 5. We see an example of a plurality of elders functioning in James. James chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. A verse that shows us that elders are put in place in plurality to care for the people of God. Not just govern and not just make decisions, but care. That there's this unique relationship between a pastor and the people that God has put under their care. That God does unique things through that relationship. That God does unique and even authoritative things through that office. I'll flip over just a few pages to your right. 1 Peter chapter 5. Perhaps my most favorite passage in talking about elders or pastors. We see all of these things come together in this passage. We see governing authority. We see decision making. We see care. Peter writes in chapter 5 verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown glory. Pastors are put in the church as under shepherds of Christ who have the unique responsibility of exercising oversight, caring for those, notice how they're described, those in their charge. Verse 3, they're to be examples. Verse 2, they're to be shepherds, kindly, tenderly, lovingly directing and guiding one final passage before we move on. Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to just flip over there. Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> just a few pages to your left from the book of James. Verse 17. Christians are instructed. In fact, it's implied gathered Christians in a church are instructed in verse 17 to obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Take note of the key words there. Obey. Submit. Keeping watch over your souls. Point out all of these passages. And there are others to look at. But I point these out to say. To highlight. It is by God's design. That the church be led. By men whom he. Vest with certain kinds of unique authority and responsibility. That there are to be godly men put up 
as an example, imperfect though they may be, as an example to lead the people of God. Now these people, these men, these pastors, they don't have unquestioned authority. Nor should they ever not be held accountable. But they do have a unique calling and a unique responsibility and a unique relationship with the church of God. So we don't just hire pastors and set apart pastors because that's what every other church seems to be doing. We believe that's what God's design is and thus that's what's best for us. Right. Men who love the Lord, know the Scriptures, have the heart of a shepherd, who care for, instruct, direct, lead God's people. Now this authority means something else too. That's very practical and very applicable for you as a Christian, as a church member. And it is that, though the church may hire a pastor and pay him, or appoint pastors, and may even designate pastors as their representatives, the pastors do not work for the church. Though a church may appoint a pastor, pay a pastor, the pastor doesn't derive his authority from the church. Men who are set apart as pastors derive their authority from the Scriptures and from the calling of Christ on their life. And that is who they work for. It is never, and ask any of us who preach, never a pleasurable moment to get up and say something that you know might hurt or offend or cause conviction in the life of another person. But we are bound and obligated Because we are not here to tickle ears, are we? We preach, we pastor, we make decisions, we lead, because we answer to Christ. Christ is our governor. Christ is our Lord. Christ is our King. Christ is our shepherd. Christ is our leader. In fact, I regularly pray, Lord, help me to lead others as You lead me. There's a whole lot more we could go on into there. Because unfortunately, and I know too many churches who have gone through this, unfortunately there are false teachers. There are wolves who masquerade as shepherds and yet they they devour the sheep. And you must have, people of God, you must have a discerning spirit and a discerning mind concerning who you let open God's Word before you who you submit your children to, who you put your ears in front of. You must have a discerning spirit. No pastor is worth his weight in his own flesh if he's not first being led by Christ. But if he is being led by Christ, he has a unique calling on his life and a unique place in the church. Not a better place. A unique place. And a unique responsibility to lead and to govern. Now, that's not to say, again, he has supreme authority because I want to move now to talk about real quick congregational leadership. The congregation as a whole has responsibility and obligation to seek Christ together. Acts chapter 6, we find that happening where the church is called together to appoint, well, what I would say is deacons. Appoint men who can Relieve the apostles, relieve the elders, so that they can focus on the ministry of the Word. Here are these seven men set apart and chosen so that they may serve tables and carry out ministry and, and do practical things like that. The church is involved in that decision. Acts chapter 15. I, I want you to flip over to this reference uh, because I find it much more, I don't know, engaging. Acts chapter 15. There's this issue that has arisen in the very infant stages of the church's life. And we're told in verse 1 of Acts chapter 15 what that issue is. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. 
these, these Gentile Greek brothers and other places, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so basically it's a church council. And they go up to Jerusalem, the hub of Christianity at the, at the time, and they're going to debate, do you have to be circumcised and keep the law to be saved? Now the council is going to conclude, no. There's some, some great reasons in here from Peter and from James. Grace that God saved us with is the same grace that He's saving them with. He saves us by grace. He saves them by grace, not by works of the law. It's a wonderful passage to read. But there are several things I want you to take note in terms of the congregation having a say. In verse 4, when Paul and Barnabas and these other leaders who are teaching wrongly come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. So they're, that almost seems insignificant, doesn't it? But it's not. They're welcomed by the whole church. The whole church has a say in what's going on in this matter. They listen to the report of Paul and Barnabas. And by verse 22, they've contributed their two cents. It seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church. Choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas to report this letter where they say, no, you're saved by grace and not by works, essentially. But in verse 22, we find this, this relationship of, of government and of authority and, and of decision making. The apostles are involved. The elders are involved. The whole church is involved. And there are a lot of other references to point to congregational authority, right? All the passages that pertain to church discipline, never do the pastors execute church discipline. The church executes church discipline. It's the church who excommunicates people. It's a statement from all those who are gathered together. But besides that, virtually Every passage in the New Testament is written to who? The church. Because the church must know right from wrong and truth and falsehood and must make her decisions. And she will, you collectively, as this body of believers, will give account to Christ. So I, I, I want to bring all that together and say the government of the church is first under the headship of Christ. First and last, it, it's all consumed in the headship of Christ. He's our Lord, our King. But on earth, by extension in His calling and His design, it is also governed by elder-led congregationalism. That's the technical term. Which means godly pastors are appointed and they lead the church and the church seeks God together. And in seeking God together, they strive to follow God together in faith and in unity. Now, isn't this a nail-biter? Government of the church. Embedded in that discussion is also a discussion on the authority of the church. What authority does a local church actually possess in the world, in a community, and over your individual life as a believer? Does it possess any authority over your life as a believer? Or over the world? Well, first, let me say, the church's authority, and the church does have authority, it's derived entirely, again, from her head. Jesus Christ. And that cannot be overstated enough. We don't get to define our authority or make up our authority. Our authority as a collective body of believers is derived from Christ and executed according to Scripture. And we see this implied, I believe, in the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. Verse 
Jesus tells them in this great commission, and He doesn't say it for no reason at all. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now that's, that's simultaneously a comforting statement for the disciples. I'm following the One who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So no matter what persecution arises, I still belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords. But there's also, I believe, implied in that commission that when the church goes forth to make disciples, they are extensions of that authority on heaven and earth. I think if we couple that with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Just I'll, I'll start in verse 20. We could back up, but verse 20 will be fine. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So I believe if we, if we put those two things together, coupled with several other passages of Scripture, but even those two together, we can understand that there is a unique authority vested in the body of Christ by Christ Himself in regards to certain things. Not all things, but certain things. We are poor ambassadors if we cannot speak and represent our Lord with a measure of authority. And so Christ has given us a measure of authority. Now that authority only exists and can only be exercised through the proclamation and application of Scripture, right? So we don't get to discipline anybody however we see fit. We don't get to dictate to anybody's life however we see fit. In fact, the apostles are very concerned with, in their language, not laying any other burden on you, on your conscience, but preserving your Christian liberty as a believer in Christ. So we don't get to make up our rules like the Pharisees. Our authority comes from Christ, but it's exercised through the proclamation and application of Scripture. So that means to have authority and in our exercising of authority we must be what Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 a pillar and buttress of the truth that's what he calls the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth we are defenders of the truth, aren't we? We're proclaimers of the truth. We're clarifiers of the truth. Not our truth. Not a shifting truth. Not an interchangeable truth, but the truth of God as revealed in Scripture. Specifically through the life of Christ and His death and His resurrection and His return. When we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth, then we have, by God's design as a church, unique authority. Now, where does that authority extend? It extends in five areas. Ready? Spiritually. The third church has authority in the area of spirituality, spiritually speaking. If you look in Matthew 16 with me, very interesting passage. First time the word church is used in the New Testament, at least as, as it's ordered. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 16, talking to the disciples, talking to Peter, and he says some very intriguing things. Verse 18 and verse 19. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So in Jesus' first discussion of the church, there's embedded a discussion of authority. 
keys represent authority. The fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against it implies authority. There's the language of binding and loosing. Those things imply authority. Which means the church has the authority to resist demonic forces. Absolutely, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. And no matter how dark this world gets, her light will never stop shining. Christ will preserve His church. The church has authority to share the message of the gospel. The keys to proclaim the entrance to heaven. To point people to the only door that grants you access to, to God the Father. And who is it? It's Jesus. The message to proclaim Christ teach on Christ, to clarify Christ. And the church has the right to examine righteous conduct. And I say that because when you look in 19 and, and Christ is talking to Peter about binding and loosing, He brings that up again very quickly in Matthew 18 talking about church discipline. In fact, He uses the same language in verse 18 of chapter 18. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He, in Matthew 18, invests very unique authority in the church to discipline Christians who are unrepentant. So the church has the authority to resist demonic forces. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. It has the authority to share the message of salvation, the message of the gospel, and thus use its keys to open wide the gates of of heaven, and it has the authority to examine and call to and clarify righteous conduct. Secondly, the church has the authority to define morality, which is most important to understand in our age, isn't it? The church clarifies what is right and what is wrong, not the world. Mom and dad, don't let your kids learn right and wrong from the TV or the internet or their friends. Don't let them learn right and wrong from the world. Human being, adult, don't learn right and wrong from society. God's Word tells us what's right and what's wrong. And the church, as the upholder and proclaimer of that Word, of that truth, clarifies what is right and what is wrong. Not the world. Number three. The church has authority to a degree over civil government. Has the authority at least, let me clarify, has the authority at least to hold accountable the civil government. But it's important to note that it is not the civil, civil government. So the church doesn't take up arms. It doesn't overthrow governments. The church doesn't insert herself in governmental affairs. The church is to be faithful as a witness to Christ in the midst of whatever government she exists in. To stand for right and wrong, to, to proclaim the gospel, to defend truth. Yet she's to hold civil governments accountable in a few very specific ways. First, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, she's to pray for her leaders put over her, who are, lest we forget, put over her by Christ. Flip over to the most famous passage, Romans 13. So first, the church has the obligation to pray for her governmental leaders. Romans 13, we have the obligation to understand what right government is. Paul says in Romans 13 verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. 
And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. One guy said, if any verse was ever added to Scripture, it must be that one. Pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom... Revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, flip over, because Paul's not the only one who talks about this. And to 1 Peter, flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. The other apostle talks about this. Verse 13. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the emperor. Now, we all know governments are fallen, aren't they? Just as the church has fallen. Because it's comprised of imperfect people. The difference for the church is that we are being filled with and guided by the Holy Spirit. The civil government is not guided by the Holy Spirit in the sense that the church is. So there are times the church has to hold accountable the civil government to its God-given directive, which is punish evil and reward good. In other words, justice. The calling, the reasoning for a government in any land at any time is for justice. I don't want to get too far into this. I'd rather just say the church should remain faithful in whatever government she finds herself under. But there is to be some unique sense of authority vested in the church by Christ as proclaimers of truth to hold up before any civil government anywhere at any time and say, this is what God has of you. Justice. Fourthly, the church has authority over church discipline. We've referenced this already. Which means the church isn't the police of sin, but for those who have unrepentant, obvious sin in their life, they are to be encouraged by the church, vehemently encouraged by the church, to repent and to turn back to Christ and to give up that sin, whatever it may be. And if they don't, after a long process, then they are to be removed from the church. And they are to be removed out of love, hoping that restoration occurs before that removal. But if it goes all the way to somebody being removed from the church, it is for their good that just maybe this is the last ditch effort that they might be shocked back into reality to see how serious they are when they are walking away from Christ. The absence of the fellowship of brothers and sisters in the church is to be a small taste of the absence of fellowship with Christ. And it's supposed to sting in such a way. We practice church discipline for the good of everybody, right? To keep us walking with Christ. To put up a barrier to keep us from unrighteousness. We don't ever practice church discipline out of malice, bitterness, resentment, anger, hatred. But out of a broken, sorrowful, faithful heart to Christ. 
And Jesus says, I have an, I've vested you with that kind of authority. That if you practice discipline on somebody, it's as if I'm practicing discipline on somebody. So we don't take church discipline lightly. But the church is vested with the authority to practice church discipline. Which means the church does have the right to speak into your life. Absolutely. Now, it doesn't have to dictate, and it doesn't dictate, and it shouldn't dictate what house you buy and where you live and what groceries you buy. That's a cult. But in terms of righteousness and holiness and purity and godliness and faith and love and unity, and in terms of Christian living and for your good and your benefit, for your own spiritual growth, Yes, the church has a right to speak into your life. As an extension of our good shepherd. Fifthly, the church has authority to clarify her own practices. Now, Christ and the Scriptures, they define most everything for us. They define worship. They define the ordinances. They define... Membership, they defined church unity, all of those things. But there is some measure of freedom given by Christ for each church to make some decisions in regards to those things. For instance, the ordinances. Christ has told us that we are to baptize and to keep the Lord's Supper. Those are, are our ordinances. Non-negotiable, we have to do that. But at what point in the service we do that, there's some leeway for us right exactly how we partake of those things for example our church asked people who are being baptized to share their testimony that's not a scriptural command even on matters of worship the scriptures are are probably most defined on how we are to worship and yet god still lets us choose which songs we're singing how many songs we're singing at what point we preach the sermon Things of that nature. So the church has the right to define and clarify her own practices and how they glorify and exalt God and accomplish her mission. So those few areas, the church has, has clear authority in the Bible over spiritual matters, moral matters, to a degree holding the civil government accountable to the directive of God. She has authority over church discipline. She has a authority over portions of her own practices, how she does things, which means we don't get to tell the church down the street how to do something, nor they us. But thirdly, this morning, as we talk about the function of the church, the church accomplishes her task. She functions through ministries. And ministries are those specific areas and ways in which we do certain things in the name of Christ. Benevolence things. Focused prayer. Now, it would be great to convince you, I don't have enough time anymore, but it would be great to convince you that ministry and programs are not synonymous things. And I only say that because I grew up thinking that. I grew up in a church where programs, just out of straight out of a, a book from somebody we don't even know, was defined as actually doing ministry. The older I get, the less I think that's true. Ministry is actually conducting your affairs in the name of Christ, whatever it may be, for the glory of Christ. I'm trying to decide what to cut out. Finish real quick. Well, how does a church carry out her ministries? Let's just go, let's just skip to that. This is where we come back real quick to pastors, church leaders. There are two offices still in operation in the church today pastors and, and deacons, elders and deacons. The church carries out her missions with pastors. I'm going to rattle some things off to you real quickly. 
who are described as an example to the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the list of qualifications, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, they're also called an example. Pastors are called a gift to the church in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. An actual gift. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, they're called leaders. Those same passages, they're called shepherds. Their primary task, according to the Bible, is to preach and teach the Word of God. Acts chapter 6, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. They also should counsel and guide God's people. That's part of shepherding them. They should make decisions. Acts chapter 15 and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. They should make decisions that, that govern the whole church. They should care for the church. Hebrews 13. There's also the office of deacons who are servants of the church. Acts chapter 6. Examples of the church for the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And what do they do? They serve. They put the meat on the bones. They put into practice the teachings of Scripture. Neither one of the occupants of those offices are perfect people. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul tells us how to deal with imperfect pastors. He says they're going to sin. It's not a surprise to you guys. He says they're going to sin. And if they keep persisting in that sin, then they're to be publicly dealt with. Which means if they don't quit, if they don't repent, if they're not striving and fighting against their sin, the same is implied for deacons. What I really wanted to point out to you this morning is that the church functions and carries out her ministries through her members. That's the second thing. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10, through 10, we're told of what has become known as the priesthood of all believers. Which means... By God's infinite grace, every single one of us, pastor or not, priest or not, bishop or not, elder or not, whatever, we're filled with God's Holy Spirit. And we understand God's Word by that Spirit. And we serve God by that Spirit. And each one of us as individuals represent God through the help of that Spirit. In Ephesians 4.12, it says that church members are to do the ministry of the church. That they're to be equipped by the church leaders to do what God has called them to do. Which is Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and a few others exercise their spiritual gifts. Serve God through the ways that He's enabled you to serve Him. A church also functions and carries out her ministry with connection to other churches. Colossians 4, we see relationships between churches. 1 Corinthians 16, we see relationships between churches. Often we find the apostles writing in the New Testament telling one church to greet another church or giving the church a greeting from another church. Fourthly, how does the church function and carry out her ministries? And probably primarily through prayer. We're dependent Dependent critters, aren't we? We cannot accomplish hardly anything on our own. And yet God has given us one of the greatest gifts in being able to fellowship and commune with Him in prayer on a regular basis in which He strengthens us, builds us up, uses us. So the church has a purpose and she has a calling. And she must exercise that calling and that purpose and that's how she is to function. And She functions by governing herself. She functions by exercising her authority. She functions by accomplishing her ministries and she accomplishes her ministries through her church leaders, her members, 
the aid of other Orthodox churches, and primarily through prayer. Where do you fit in to all of that? A church is as healthy and she functions as well as her members do. Individual members. How are you helping the church function? How do you encourage those who are in leadership over you? Do you submit to them? Do you trust them? Pray for them? Love them? Hebrews 13, 17, do you make it a joy for them to care for you? How can you minister and serve others? Why aren't you exercising your spiritual gifts if you're not? These are questions we must answer if we are to rightly function as the church. And if we are to rightly function as the church, it begins with those questions. I finally just want to say this last thing. None of that ultimately really matters for you. And you have no part to play, honestly. Unless you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ of your, as your Savior. We can get into all the technicalities and the nuances of how a church is to operate, and we should. We should understand that together. But it should never come at the expense of what's most important. And that is you being right with God. You'll never help a church function. You'll never belong to a church. You'll never exercise a spiritual gift. Unless Christ has caused you to be born again and filled you with His Spirit. And that... Reality or, or how, to, how that comes about is remarkably simple. Not easy. Simple. The Bible says, if you will acknowledge your sin before God, confess to Him your sin. Specific sin, general sin. And repent. Which means... Tell him, I don't want that anymore. I want you. And trust in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Trust in his promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then you'll be saved. And you join the greatest family that has ever existed. And you join in the work that's the greatest work the world has ever known. And you're given a home in the greatest home that will ever be an eternal heaven with Christ. Oh, church member, Christian, function rightly, function. Know what the Bible says about you as a church member. Know what the Bible says about us working together in harmony and unity and in faith to accomplish our purpose and our calling. But never any of us forget that primary is being right with God through Christ. Without that, none of this has anything to do with you. Father, Your Word tells us what we need to know. What we need to know as people. What we need to know to live in society, in this world. What we need to know to be a good and a healthy and a right church. And most importantly, what we need to know to be right with You. And that is confessing our sin. Being honest with ourselves. And to humbly ask for Your forgiveness. And to trust that when we come to You for salvation, You save. We praise You for saving us. And now that You have, help us to unite together in a common understanding with a common goal of furthering the purpose and calling of this body of believers to glorify You by worshiping You, by helping each other grow spiritually, by taking the Gospel to the ends of the world. In Jesus' name, Amen.